0: good morning, good to see you all. Welcome to the 1045 service. Hey, we got some ground to cover today, but just before we get moving, let me just, I just wanna make sure I point out what just, man, we've just been led excellently excellently in worship and, uh, and good worship, it's like, it has, it has notes, like a good meal, right? It's got multiple sort of ingredients that are brought in and it works at a level that's even more subtle than you realize. So I want to highlight for you what we just did that works on our soul in a way that we might not even have recognized it was working on our soul. So we just join across generations. Like Psalm 145 says, one generation will declare your works to another Right? That it's the nature of God that he's so wonderful that generation to generation we declare His praises forward. And when we sang in that second song, Jesus Christ is Lord, you were making a profession of faith. If you're of faith, if you're in Christ, you're making a profession of faith that has been made by every generation of follower of Jesus that has ever come before us. You're, do you recognize that? You're not just sort of like coming and singing a nice song. You're making a profession that is the most simple and perhaps the most profound statement of theology that every believer before you has ever made. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lord over everything. He's the king. He rules his creation and he's full of love and mercy and grace. And that's what you were declaring. Jesus Christ is Lord. And by the way, you're declaring it down the generations because a generation is coming that needs to hear Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be a generation after them. Should the Lord tarry and not come that we'll need to hear Jesus Christ is Lord and echoes from generation to generation. So you both receive that and then pass it forward as you say it. That's the richness of what we just sang. And then after that, that declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord, ruling and reigning, as if to say, we also need the other side of that equation. We sang Psalm 130. We said, I will wait for you, Lord, because even though you are Lord and you rule and you reign, there are parts of my life where I'm still waiting. (laughs) I'm waiting for redemption. I'm waiting for restoration. I'm waiting for wholeness. I'm waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And we said, not I wait without hope, but I wait and on your word, I will rely. As if to say, we trust that your word is true and if we'll give ourselves to it and live according to it and let us convict us and guide the path of our life, if I will follow it and obey it, it will result in fruitfulness. It will result in good. It will result in righteousness. And so we've declared that. Did you know you were declaring all that? (laughs) Just in those two songs. I just want to highlight that for you. It has nothing to do with the rest of our day here. Actually, it has a lot to do with the rest of our day, I guess. We're saying Jesus Christ is Lord, which is the prevailing statement for us. But I'm getting a little behind now. All right, so. We are in a series, uh, a little three-week mini-series on a theology of ethnicity and race and justice. And if you were with us last week, we talked about what is a theology, what's a biblical theology of ethnicity and race. And one of the things that I argued is that we're we're adding to our biblical diet here. Our regular sort of meat and potatoes is the exposition of books of the Bible. And we want to spend some time, and we'll do this Also, in the future, thinking biblically about themes that run across the Bible. So they cut across all the different books. And when you study a book, you see it, but you can't trace it from beginning to end. And sometimes tracing it from beginning to end is something we need to do. So that's what we tried to do with ethnicity. Now, when I say we're adding to our biblical diet, I hope what you didn't hear is, here's your Brussels sprouts, eat them. All right. My hope is that what you heard was uh, we normally eat filet mignon. Now, I may overcook it a little bit sometimes. All right. But we're trying to give filet mignon. And this is now just this is a New York strip. It's a, it's a different flavor of a great main course. Does that make sense? If you love Brussels sprouts, that made no sense to you. But whatever. It's fine. The rest of us hate Brussels sprouts. Ugh. All right. So this is not Brussels sprouts. So what we did last week is what we tried to do. And if, by the way, these all have to go together. So if you're joining us for the first time, let me just invite you to go back and listen to last week. If you're regularly here, but you missed last week, I need these to go together for you. So I, w- I want to encourage you to go back and give a listen. So we're going to touch on some things today that go back to last week. So what we tried to do last week was to say, well, God has this plan for our ethnic heritages that he shows that it plays a part in the redemptive work that he's doing. And we need to see what part that is so we can use them rightly, right? And we can use that tool rightly. And this week we come to a theology of justice and we want to think about that today. So that's where we are. We're going to, our aim today is to develop a biblical theology of justice. That's what we want to do. Develop a biblical theology of justice. Now, let me say a couple things just right here at the outset we're not primarily or first aiming to critique secular ideas of justice. That's not our first job. Our, our first job is not to say, here's all that's wrong with the way the world thinks about justice. And can I tell you that I have a couple of concerns that come up when I talk with believers or when I read what other authors and believers write, some other authors and write, and it's two things that when I hear the church in our day talking about a critique of secular justice, here are my two concerns. Often I find that believers, maybe I'm in conversation with, critique a secular view of justice, but have nothing to offer in place of it. And that's part of what we want to give a corrective in today. We want to give you something to offer, right? Uh, It's a problem if you find yourself going, well, here's what's wrong about a secular view of justice, but you don't understand what a true view of it is. Now, there's plenty of cause to be concerned about secular ideas around justice. There's plenty of things that are off base and incorrect, according to the scriptures, But if we can't advocate for a right view of justice, then it should probably alarm us to the idea that we are avoiding something through our criticism rather than actually wanting to advocate for something that's right. Fair enough? Is it? (laughs) All right, good. Just want to make sure. (laughs) The second concern that I have is often when I find myself in these kinds of conversations, that some folks will dismiss a secular view of justice that's more liberal in nature, at least as we define cultural you know, liberalism versus conservati- conservatism. But then they'll embrace a, an also secular view of justice that's just secular on the conservative side of things. There is a view of justice that is liberal and is secular and misses what the Bible says about sin, about humanity, about God, about some really important categories. But the correction to that is not sometimes what is offered which is a conservative view of the same thing which is I would say equally secular because it does not speak the truth about what God is and what humanity is and our his plan in place of that. So we don't want to simply lean into political ideologies for our view of what justice is. We want the scriptures to tell us. So that's what we're coming we're coming to feast on the scriptures today, okay? Yeah, it's a good meal. All right. So we're going to come and we're going to feast on the scriptures and ask, not what does this political leaning this way or this political leaning that way tell me about what justice is, because quite frankly, both get it wrong. But the scriptures have something to offer us that's so rich and so deep that is a true vision of justice and we want to be as God's people concerned with it. So we're gonna frame our day today around two questions, very simple. I'm gonna try and, we're gonna put the cookies on the, on, we don't wanna put them on the top shelf today, all right? We want them on the low counter where the kiddos can get to them. You're not the kiddos, but you know what I mean. Like, we wanna get to the cookies, all right? So we wanna get to the cookies. Our two questions are this. Uh, the first one is, why is justice important? Why does it matter? And the second one is, what is it? What is justice? So in that first part, what I want to do is kind of do what we did last week, which is walk you from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to see how justice fits in God's redemptive work, why it's important to him, how it fits within the redemptive plan that he's been cultivating from the very beginning. In fact, Ephesians tells us since before the creation, the foundation of the earth, God has been at work towards redemption. Then when we ask, well, what is it? We wanna go back into a certain section of that story, mostly into God's law in the Old Testament and see what it says to us about justice. Now, we'll also look at some New Testament, some Acts chapter two, some James. So we're gonna move through a lot of texts. We'll have them on the screen. They're in your sermon notes. So I'll encourage you to refer back to those. You can always grab those sermon notes as we go. So let's go to that first question. Why is justice important? All right, let's warm ourselves up here and ask this question. Why is it important? So let me give you a secondary answer and then I'm gonna give you the primary answer. The secondary answer is this, is that God's people can't thrive, can't flourish without justice. Throughout the scriptures, whenever God's people fail to practice justice, God disciplines them and they're ineffective in their mission and in their work. That's why in the Old Testament, he sent the people of Israel into exile again and again. What the prophets say to them about God's disciplinary hand upon them is two things. You are being disciplined because you failed to practice justice and righteousness. You failed to be just and to live according to my word. And as a result, there is discipline. And the second thing they say, but there is hope. The prophets always return to, but there is hope. Redemption is on the way. There's a work that God is doing. He hasn't abandoned you. So praise God. That when we fail to be just, he does not abandon us. Somebody say amen to that. But one of the things that we need to recognize, let me just ask this question. By your own estimation, just answer this in your head. Would you say the people of God, Christians, are thriving in our day and age? Would you say we're effective in our mission? That we're winning people left and right in evangelism? That they're coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and being reconciled to God? Would you say that we are effective in our culture where people go, wow, that makes sense. And would you say that we have a reputation for being full of love and mercy and truth? Would you say that that is true? And again, just answer that in your own mind. Now. There's a variety of reasons why we could be ineffective in our mission. But at least one consideration should be for every biblical Christian is, if I'm ineffective in the work of God, it might be because of hard hearts. It might be because of a you know, of, of variety of things. But one of the questions I always have to ask myself is, am I ineffective? Am I failing to thrive and flourish because I'm not exercising justice? Because that's always a biblical category. God's people do not thrive when they do not practice justice. And where they ignore it, they are ineffective in God's work in the world. You with me? Does that make sense? Now, I said that's the secondary reason. You might think that sounds pretty important. So what's the primary reason? Well, the primary reason that justice is important is because justice is the one of the ends of all of God's redemptive work. It's the direction he's heading. It's what he's aiming to accomplish. Now, there's a couple of ends of God's redemptive work. Now, again, the whole Bible, one story. If you're unfamiliar with this, let me remind you or teach and share with you for the first time. The whole Bible is one big story. There's lots of different parts to that story, but the overarching theme to the entire story is God is redeeming a people for himself, for his glory. That's the theme. God is winning and saving people who have been separated from him by their sin, restoring them, and he's gonna bring in a kingdom. He's going to usher in a kingdom. That's why Jesus came. So the trajectory of the whole thing, the whole story is towards justice. Now we could say, hey, the end of the story, the end he's aiming to accomplish is his own glory. Amen. Absolutely. We could say he's looking to restore people to himself. Absolutely. But as he restores and as he aims for his glory, he does it through establishing a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Would you agree with that? That's the trajectory of the whole story. It's headed towards a perfect kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And justice and righteousness are basically synonyms in the scripture. There is some distinction, but when you see them together, often they are entailing a very similar idea. We might even say it this way. We do justice in order to be righteous. Those two things go hand in hand at every turn throughout scripture. Now, if that's the trajectory, here's how that differs from last week. Last week, we talked about a theology of ethnicity and race. And I walked you through Genesis, and then I walked you into uh, the story of, you know, I went through the Old Testament, and then we worked our way into the ministry of Jesus and all the way into Revelation. So we went Genesis to Revelation. And the thing that I was trying to help you see is that ethnicity is an important thing because it is a means to an end, it is a tool that God delights and wants to use in order to bring about redemption, right? So it testifies to redemption. It is a way that he was using it to actually move towards the, the bringing of Jesus into the world to accomplish redemption. And the, the ethnic diversity that he delights in and has designed and will be a part of his kingdom is a testimony to the gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith. So again, you can go back and listen to that. But the point is ethnicity is a tool in God's redemptive tool belt, if you will. The difference in justice is that justice is not a tool towards another end. It is the end. It is the theme that he's aiming towards, that he's bringing about. Does that make sense? So that's why it's of primary importance. As we go through the scriptures, what we just need to see is how God is moving towards justice from beginning to end. So let's do that. Again, we're still asking why is justice important? The answer is because it's the aim of all his redemptive work or one of the major aims. And so let's see that through the story of the Bible. So the first thing that we need to see is that justice is the end because it was the beginning, all right? Justice is the end because it was the beginning. And by that, I mean this. All our understanding of what justice is is rooted in the character and nature of God because he himself is just. In other words, he defines what justice is and he is the one to work it out. He is the one bringing it about. And listen, like if we were to, if we, If you disagree with that, if you don't grab hold of that, then everything else I say is not going to make any sense because we root all our understanding of justice, true justice in who God is. Therefore, he defines what it is. That means you can't just say anything is justice. You can't just say, well, this is justice, because if that's not what God calls it, then that's not what it is, right? So we can't just make up our own definitions around justice, but it also, can we agree that if we recognize that justice is rooted in the very nature of God and who he is, and he is bringing that to bear upon us, then it is something that it should be important to us. It is something we should care deeply about. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four. 32, verse four. This is Moses, and Moses, he doesn't just say this. It's actually called the song of Moses. He sings it. So I love that image. Moses sings this. The rock, I won't try to put a tune to it because I don't think i do a very good job. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. You see that? What what is he saying about God? One of the primary attributes of God is that he is just. Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23 and 24. One of my favorite texts, I learned this early on in life and I've always gone back to it. It says this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, The first reason why justice is important is because it is God's very nature. He is justice, defines it for us, and draws us towards it. Everything else starts from there. So that's the first thing. God, who pre-exists all created things, is just in his nature. Now, he creates a world, and in that world, he creates people as the pinnacle of that creation. Again, we're just walking the story forward now. And in making those people, he says, we talked about this last week, I'm gonna make them in my image. Now think about the implications of that. We thought about the implications for ethnicity and race last week. Let's think about the implications for justice this week. If Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that you and I, in a way different from all the rest of the created world and universe, are made in the image of God, in his likeness, then it means that we are made to receive justice and to practice justice because we are to be like him. Fair enough? Fair enough. So we are image bearers. Now listen, here's where secular views of justice, actually on both sides, get an understanding of humanity wrong. Because all secular views of humanity, by definition, dismiss the idea that human beings are image bearers. And if you're not dealing with an image bearer, then it's not someone you have to give justice to. And if you are not an image bearer, then you don't have to practice justice. You can do it when you want to. In fact, society can make an appeal to justice and say we should want justice, but they can't make justice a requirement because they don't have image bearing. You say, why? Why should I be just? Why should I give that person what they deserve? Why should I care about that the law was broken and this person should be punished? Why? Who says What standard do you bring to bear? And for us, we have a standard outside of ourselves by which we can say it must be so because God is this way and he has made people to receive justice as his image bearers. Does that make sense? A secular society can only ever offer justice as a recommendation. They can never offer it as a requirement no matter how hard they might try to weave their way around that, it always comes back to that reality. Now, he's made people in his image. Go forward, Genesis chapter three, and the next thing we see is that sin breaks our desire and ability to be just. So we're made in his image, we're supposed to be just and we're supposed to receive justice. And again, we're gonna define that in just a moment. But the next thing that we see is that sin fractures our relationship with God and therefore one another, and it makes us unjust towards one another. So it takes away my desire to be just. If you find in yourself selfishness and you'd rather withhold what someone needs from them or deserves in order to keep it for yourself, why is that? It's because your ability to be just and righteous has been fractured by sin's entrance into the world. There's a phrase that you and I need to get real comfortable with, and it's this phrase. And again, a secular world knows nothing of this. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's a phrase that you need to rest in and embrace. Maybe rest in is not the right word, but you need to comprehend it. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. And by that, we mean that you and I are capable of more injustice and more sin and more egregious choices and immorality than we can possibly fathom. And I find that in this day and age, I find Christians when a secular world looks at us and points the and says, you're doing whatever and blaming us about something. Our response has been to be like, "nah," and it's completely unhelpful. Do you know what every Christian's response to that should be? I mean, it might not. If it's a false claim, of course, to say, say, hey, by, by God's standard, that's untrue. Okay, but actually, most of the time, our response should probably be something like, I'm way worse than you could even imagine. Like, I'm capable of far more than you even know, but then don't leave this part, but the grace of God. But the grace of God, don't ever leave that out. But friends, a true biblical theology as it relates to justice accepts and understands that because of the fall, even though I am being redeemed, there is a flesh in me that is capable of sin beyond what I comprehend. And I don't get why we're so easily offended, to be honest. We should be the hardest people to offend because we got a good theology of sin, We understand it. We know we're prone to it. Like I stood up here last week and I told you, I see it in myself. I see the desire to minimize others who are not like me across ethnic lines. I hate it in myself, but I see it. I've traveled many places in the world and without exception, every time something annoys me about other cultures that aren't sinful, I think, they're not like me. I'm better than them. It enters into my heart all the time. And the difference is whether you just let it wash over you or whether you recognize it for the sin that it is and you say, I got to put that to death. That's got to die. And you want to kill it. Exceeding sinfulness of sin. So now move forward. And again, the next thing that we see is that in spite of that, right? So he makes image bearers worthy of justice and he makes image bearers who should love justice and want to practice it. Then sin fractures that. But then what we see really through the rest of the story is that God is at work and committed to being at work to keep us moving towards justice. He is advancing the ball towards justice throughout the rest of the story. Let me just show you some examples how, and then we'll get into what is justice. So the first thing we see is Abraham and Moses, right? So in Genesis 12, he chooses Abram, renames him Abraham, says, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. I'm going to bring a nation through you. And then He gives that nation a law through Moses, and it's what we call the Old Covenant, right? It's Exodus chapter 20, and it's what you find in Leviticus and what you're reading in Deuteronomy, these books of the Bible. And that law is meant to do two things, primarily. That law given to Moses is meant to show the nature and the character and the holiness of God, including his justice and what he's like. So again, again and again in the law, we'll find this like, this is what justice is. This is what justice is. It's meant to show that. And at the same time, it's meant to show me that I could never live up to that law. And as a result, I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to do it for me because I can't do it. If I'm really honest, I look at that law and I go, I might be able to keep that with my actions for a while, but my heart is not right because sin didn't just fracture this surface of me. It fractured the center of me. And as a result, my heart has to change. Something has to get Inside me that can change me, right? And we're gonna talk about that in just a minute. But so the law is given. Now, here, just keep advancing the story. Moses brings the law that people say, We will obey. And do they obey? No. Again and again, they fail, right? Now, look, give a little credit here, because when you're reading through your Old Testament, usually, often, 40, 50, 60 years will pass between the stories that we're reading, but we put them all together and it makes it seem like literally God does something the people respond with joy and they say, yes, we're gonna follow you. And then like the next day they fail. It lasts a few years, but every time without exception, the people fail because the law can't do it. It can't fix what's broken. And so the next thing that happens in the movement towards justice is that God sends the prophets. And when the prophets show up, our Isaiah's, our Elijah's, our Jeremiah's, our Amos's, they start talking about justice a lot. They start saying to God's people before they're sent into exile and then when they're in exile and then on the backside of the exile, you are not practicing justice. In fact, if you were going to summarize the message of the prophets, like if you were going to read all the prophets in the Bible, and you wanted to summarize them, I would argue you could summarize them this way. They are saying you are not practicing justice and righteousness, but God is going to do something. He's got a hope that's coming. It's those two things. You are failing. God's going to do something about it. He's sending one who is a rescuer. That's what I would argue is the, is the major theme of all the prophets as you go through the scripture. So he keeps advocating for justice. Do you see that? He keeps pushing the ball down the field and saying, we're doing something here. I'm building something here. We're moving towards justice. We're moving towards righteousness. That's what the story is unfolding for us. Now, friends, let me say there that remember, because the next thing he does is he sends Jesus into the world, right? The prophets talk about him and they send him to the world. Now, remember that when Jesus comes into the world, he comes in and he immediately begins in his ministry to condemn the religious elite of his day. And what is the thing that he accuses them of? Many things, but one of the major ones is, you are basically among the group of people who put the prophets to death. The people who were telling you you weren't just and you weren't righteous, y'all are the ones that were putting them to death. And he frames his ministry around the lens of establishing a kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness, that all that the law pointed to, he can now do. He will live the perfectly just life. And then when he dies, he will die for the sins of people, not his own, for their injustices. And then he will rise again, in order to assure us that he can establish this kingdom we see in Revelation of perfect justice and perfect righteousness. He is the key, which is why a couple things then, a couple implications of that, which is why number one, as followers of Jesus, we don't ever believe that the work that, need, that must be done can be done simply by rearranging systems and structures or by good laws. Now we like good laws, yes? Absolutely, we, ri- we like righteous systems. We should want those things and we should advocate for those things. But we recognize that they themselves cannot be the solution. And that's a big dividing line between a secular worldview and a Christian worldview is that as Christians, we recognize all the great systems in the world with the best intentions will always come up short because the hearts of men are damaged and destroyed. And it's not until the redemptive power of Jesus comes to bear upon a heart that true righteousness and true justice can begin to be practiced. And even those of us redeemed fall short because we are in the process of being redeemed. That's a big deal. That's why we don't believe all injustice is just the result of a system because we see the sinfulness of every human heart and we recognize that's where the injustice comes from. It doesn't just come from a system that's bad. That's not the only thing to blame. It comes from people and the hearts of people are sinful. That's tremendously important. Now, that's why we recognize that, by the way, is also why we believe as a church, we want to be about the work of justice. I am so proud for people who are leading the way in our congregation in the community resource center, which has been designed to help students who are falling behind to help them. Those who are uh, in need of help in the educational realm is designed to help them. I'm so proud of those who are leading the way in refugee ministry to care for the sojourners among us that the scriptures talk about. I'm so proud of the the folks who are leading the way in adoption and foster care who seek to help us care and do the work of justice in caring for the orphan, the kid who needs a home, right? These are biblical categories. And I love that our people are leading the way, but recognize this, if at any point those kinds of works push out the proclamation of the gospel as if those are the things of most importance, then something is wrong. The proclamation of the gospel to the hearts of men and women is primary and always must be primary. But to proclaim the gospel and ignore injustice is also a failure of the church. Can we agree on that? Both are failures. Let us never Ever. If you stop hearing Christ crucified from this pulpit, get out of here. But if we just proclaim Christ crucified and then say to people in need, go be warm and well-filled, we don't care. Then something is wrong with us. These are not mutually exclusive, okay? They are not. They go together, hand in hand. Primacy to Proclamation but always proclamation followed by action to care for those in need, always. That's our desire. We wanna grow and grow and grow in the work of justice as God defines justice. What a good thing it is. Okay, moving forward then, let's ask this. So just to recap there, justice is important. Justice is important because it is God's nature. He is establishing a kingdom of perfect justice and has furthered the work of justice throughout his redemptive story, right? So now, that was, our, that was our bit of trying to do a little bit of Genesis to Revelation, right? And I didn't even, you can go home today and read Revelation 22, verses one through four. It's this beautiful picture of the kingdom established. And in it, there's this tree of life and it's on the, it's on the banks of this stream of, of beautiful water. I mean, just picture yourself there. <sighs> Let's all just say yes, cannot wait. It says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. In other words, wherever there's been injustice that's like harmed and thwarted and and destroyed, there's going to be healing in that kingdom. Right. But then it says at the end of that, and no one who is wicked will enter into this place. Right. In other words, there's, there's punishment of that. Right. There's this beautiful picture of that. Now, Let's go to the question, what is justice? Now, the Bible speaks very broadly. This is a nuanced conversation, all right? And so in the breadth of all the things the scriptures talk about, justice touches upon our individual personal interactions, our relationships. Justice touches upon how we set up economic systems. Justice touches on how we think about Every aspect of life, the law and the courtroom. So everything, justice, is, justice never says, you know, I'm only concerned about whether you say nice things to your friend, right? It is concerned about that. But justice is also concerned about the systems and the structures and the laws. And so there is just, I mean, it, it just is a broad conversation, which means that it can be a little hard to nail down. I wanna just make five, what I hope are, again, put the cookies on the lower shelf sort of statements for us about justice. Because I just want you to walk out. I want you to love justice, yes? Because you love God. And I want you to say, okay, God, where are you giving me opportunity, right? Let, can I just encourage you and maybe release you from something? When I was growing up, and I would read these, all these commands, I used to think I had to do all of them if I was gonna be just, if I was gonna be right with God. I was like, okay, I gotta figure out how to care for widows. I got to go, I got to, to, I I helped start a prison ministry in college, I think in part because I was like, well, I gotta to go to the prisoner because Jesus talks about that, Matthew 25. And then I gotta figure out how to care for the homeless. And then I gotta figure out how to also do this. Have you ever felt that way? As you read the scriptures and you're like, uh, there's a lot of stuff here. How am I supposed to do all this? Friends, you don't have to do it all. That is the beauty of the body of Christ. Some of us will be called into certain aspects of justice and others into others. And don't do the passion projection thing where you'd be like, if you don't care about my justice issue, then you're just, you don't get it. Don't do that. That's not helpful. All right? But recognize this. If you are turning a blind eye to justice, one, if you're practicing injustice and oppression in any way, stop it then look for the places God is going to call you. Look for the places he's going to give you opportunity. Be a person who says, I want to be about justice. God, show me how. Give me, every, give me the opportunity and he'll lead you. He'll show you. And for some of you, it will be widows and orphans. And for some, or widows, and then for some orphans. And for some, it will be immigration and immigrants and the sojourner in the land the scripture talks about. For some, it will be in areas of ethnicity and race and redeeming things there. Praise God. Praise God. But just, can I? To be a person of justice is not to tick off a laundry list of items. Just listen to the Lord and follow His Spirit. Walk with Him and He will lead you. Fair enough? Okay, I just want to take that weight off you. We never want to be a church that just piles on the legalistic lists of to dos. You will burn yourself out, and all that really is is a gospel of works. All right? And that's not who we are. Now, Again, the Bible speaks broadly about justice. Tim Keller talks about it, and he, he divides it into these four categories, generosity, equality, advocacy, responsibility. I like Kevin DeYoung. He tries to make a simple statement about it, and he says, justice is treating people equitably, working for systems and structures that are fair, and looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. That's a pretty good summary, I think. So now listen. Here's what I want to give you. These five statements that we're going to make, they kind of, jive with those things that we just read. But I've given you in your sermon notes, which you can get online, but you can also get them at the doors. I've given you in those sermon notes a list of some key biblical passages on justice. We're not gonna be able to hit on all of them today. But if you wanna just go, what are some of the key texts to help inform the way I think about justice? Grab those sermon notes. I've listed like eight or nine of them there. Some great passages like Isaiah chapter one, um, some just really, really rich texts that you need to kind of get. Exodus, uh, um, sorry, Ezekiel 18, some of these important passages. So let's dive in. Okay, what is justice? Five statements. Number one. Number one statement is this. Justice involves both punishment and restoration. It's two sides of justice. If you want the fancy words, we call it the retributive aspect of justice and the restorative aspect of justice. And all we mean by that is that if you leave off one of those sides, you're not being just. So when crime is committed, when injustice is committed, that gets punished, that's a right part of that. So there are certain elements of a secular society which want to argue that all wrongdoing is just the result of, a, of an unjust system and therefore we shouldn't punish those who do wrong. That's wrong. That's not biblical justice. Biblical justice recognizes that, that activity that is unjust, that is criminal, needs to be punished. That protects people from that kind of injustice. But the other side is the restorative side the scriptures talk about, which is those whom have, who have wrong done to them who are either the victims of injustice at a personal level or sometimes at a systemic level because we as people can create systems. We do all the time. Sometimes those systems are not just. Sometimes they're not righteous. Sometimes they unduly impact certain people. And if that's the case, then there is a restoration that needs to be made. There's a restoration that needs to be made. Both of those sides are sides. And the Bible actually spends more time on the restorative side than it does on the retributive side. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 146 Verses five through nine it says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. And now almost as if to say, OK, well, what does that mean? He kind of goes on who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked, he brings to what? To ruin. Now, what you see there is the two sides of justice. He's celebrated and worshiped because he is just. And then what's listed is this whole list of restorative things. He looks out for those who are oppressed. He gives food he does all these things, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, and then at the end, here's the other side of justice, but he punishes the wicked, right? That's, what, that's the point there of thinking about his justice. If you're missing either side of that, then you're missing something about biblical justice. Statement number two, because we got to move now, all right? Statement number two is that justice requires generosity. Justice requires generosity. Now, Here's what I would suggest to you if we look at Ezekiel 18, five through nine and then Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 19. I'm gonna read those to you in just a moment. But here's what I wanna to suggest to you in both these texts. The reason justice requires generosity is because it both corrects an overly individualistic view that says all my money belongs to me and no one has a right to it. No one else has a right to it, right? Right? That is not the way a just person thinks biblically, but it also undoes the claim that the state should come in and redistribute wealth so that everyone has an equal economic outcome. The Bible both sets up systems that care for the disadvantaged and look out for the needy at the same time, recognizing that there is such a thing as individual property rights, okay? And so the error on both sides of that, the if there's the one overly individualistic side, and then there's the side that sort of acts like the point of justice is that everyone has an equal economic outcome. That's also not a biblical vision of what justice is. So look at what happens in Ezekiel 18:5 through 9. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, now look at what happens next. Gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. Does not lend it interest or take any profit. Withholds his hand from injustice. Executes true justice between man and man. Walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, what you just saw there in that list from Ezekiel is really important because in this text, in Ezekiel 18, it's one of the places in the Old Testament where the prophet is saying, look, you're not going to be judged for the sins of your fathers. You're going to be judged for your own actions. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But he's going to say, you're going to be judged for your own actions. And then he tries to declare what justice looks like. Okay, if you're going to be judged for what you do, then let's talk about what that is. And he gives some moral purity law stuff where he says, you need to withhold yourself from certain kinds of sin, right? And then he comes into the next part and he begin, what does he begin to argue the just person does? He says he doesn't oppress anyone. Notice he doesn't practice injustice himself. He doesn't look to get an advantage off of anyone else. By the way, after that, he, doesn't, he says he doesn't lend at interest or take any profit. It doesn't mean that you can't turn a profit in business. What he means is that you don't squeeze out every dime from people that you can in your business practices where you're basically making it impossible for them to get, uh, receive the right amount for the, of work from you that you're charging for. Basically, he says you charge rightly for what you do and what you give. But in the middle of that, what does he say? He gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. In other words, the person who's just is generous. The person who's just is generous. It's part and parcel with justice that the person who is just is generous. They see, and here's, here's the difference, is that the person who's secular either views everything as like should be owned by the state and then it should be redistributed or they say, everything is mine and no one else has a right to it. But the person who's just biblically recognizes that everything they have, while they it does belong to them, it ultimately belongs to who? The Lord. It's his. That's the true just person. It's not mine. It's his. Now he's put it in my stewardship. I have a right to have people not take it from me, rob me of it. Yet, I don't, I don't walk around going, this is mine, you don't, ha- you don't get any. This is mine, you don't get any. I spend all my time and energy asking, this has been placed in my hands. What do I do with it that serves the Lord and that blesses him? How do I get it out of my hands so that people who are in need have what they need? That's what the just person does. Now, he goes even further than that. He doesn't just sort of command in Ezekiel 18, hey, be generous if you want to be just. He actually sets up systems that bring about generosity. So that's Deuteronomy The section in Deuteronomy I was telling you about in 24, chapter 24, verse 17 through 19. He says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, the immigrant, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. All right, what's he gonna command? When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. What I want you to see there, and there's other texts like in Leviticus where he actually prescribes, not just if, you are, if you're farming your field and you drop something, that's what he's saying there, leave it. Don't go back and get it. Don't don't try and scour every bit of profit you can from your work. Leave something for those in need. In fact, do your work so that people in need will have something. He actually uh, puts into his law that there's portions of their field that they are not to harvest so that those who have a need can come and glean from that field and have food. The widow, the orphan, and the sojourner in the land. He's making provision for them in the economic system of the day. And he's saying, if you're just, you will be generous. You will have a plan for generosity. You will think about those in need and you will execute according to that plan. All right, that's what he's getting at. Now, again, right before that, Lest you say, well, that sounds like socialism, right? Deuteronomy chapter 23, right before that, says to the gleaners, hey, you can't just take whatever you want. You can't just go through and just like, I'm gonna take it all. No, 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 I'm making provision for you. Operate within that provision. The person who owns the land has a right to farm that land and to then take the profit from that land. I like what Bruce Waltke says here when thinking about this. He In examining the book of Proverbs, which the primary theme of Proverbs is the wicked versus the righteous. What's the difference between the wicked person and the righteous person? Right? And we see righteous is tied very closely with the idea of justice. When it comes to wealth, here's what Waltke says is basically the teaching of all of Proverbs. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That's a pretty solid statement about what Proverbs teaches about Wealth and how the just person and the righteous person thinks about it and uses it. Now, let's go to statement number three. Statement number three is this. Justice requires special concern for the poor and the oppressed. All right, so a couple of things here. Justice requires special concern. Now, we're gonna see that justice requires personal impartiality. The scriptures are not gonna advocate that just because someone is in an oppressed people group, everything that they do then is right, and everything that someone in a power group does, or a group that has power does, is then wrong. There's a standard of justice that has to be impartially applied to everybody, rich or poor. And we're actually going to see that. So like Leviticus 19 says this, uh, Leviticus 19, 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial. And you would think the next statement is going to be to the rich, right? That's not what he says. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Do you see that what Leviticus is saying there is that there's an objective standard of justice and it should apply equally whether someone is socioeconomically disadvantaged or whether they are advantaged. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with the point you're making, which is to say there's special attention given to the poor and oppressed. Because even though it makes that statement about, look, justice, there's a standard because it's rooted in the nature of God. The very next thing we see is that God recognizes that the poor... And those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged are more likely to be oppressed than anyone else. And so he makes special provision for them. And he says the just person gives consideration to that reality. So this is what Psalm 82, two through four say. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs chapter 31, verse eight through nine, open your mouth for the mute. The person who can't speak for themselves, speak for them. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, again, the scripture is not saying here, That being poor and needy makes you right in all circumstances, right? Or always makes you the victim. But it does recognize that these are the people most likely to be disadvantaged. And it says, my people are going to look out for them. They're going to care about that. They're going to have a tender heart. They're not just going to say, well, what did you do to get yourself in that position? That's not the only question that will ever be asked by a believer. In fact, I would argue it's not the first question that gets asked. It's not an unimportant question, but I'm not sure it's the first question. First question is: How do I look to the to the rights of the poor and needy if they're being trampled on? Number four. Justice requires personal impartiality, what we just saw, and equitable laws. Personal impartiality and equitable laws. Now, here's what I mean by that. Justice requires personal impartiality. It means that we are to treat one another with. Uh, in with as image bearers with equal standing. So James chapter two, I won't read it to you here, but but just to summarize James chapter two, verses one through four, which argues against this kind of partiality says, look, follower of Jesus, you need to recognize that it's contrary to the gospel for you to hold a dinner party and invite a bunch of people. And then you say to the rich person, here, you take the seat of honor and you say to the poor person, go sit in the corner. So what you've done is you've contradicted the gospel. You say you believe because the gospel says those people are of equal value, of equal worth, and you should treat them equally, right? That in kind of that interpersonal impartiality is one aspect of justice. So you have to treat image bearers as image bearers. Fair enough. Yes. All right, so that's part one, but then it doesn't stop there. It's not just concerned. justice isn't just concerned that, that you treat people with impartiality as image bearers. It also then goes on to say, and you need to make sure that there are equitable laws. They need to be treated equally before the courts. So we find in Leviticus twenty four twenty two, just one verse, one statement, very simple. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. In other words, for the person who's from your country, the person who's not from your country. When they go to court, one shouldn't be able to get a different brand of justice than the other. They should have the, the standard of justice equally applied to them. And then the reason is, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm the God of justice. Deuteronomy 16:19 and 20 says, You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's that idea that we don't thrive unless we're a people of justice. Do you see that? We don't thrive unless we're a people of justice. Now, friends, let me say that, again, I think it's a secular idea. It's not a biblical idea to ignore the idea that in systems injustices can become built up and rooted into them. And where we see that happening, if someone can get a different brand of justice because they have more money or because they have a certain ethnic heritage, if we see a disparity in the way the law is treating people, that is something that we should speak to and advocate for righteousness and justice in it. Now, friends, let me just also say there, There is room for Christians then, if we accept that broad principle and all say yes and amen to that, then guess what? There's all kinds of grounds for us to say, now let's have a nuanced conversation about whether what's happening is injustice or whether the facts are being skewed. And there's a conversation to be had about the data points and the assessment of that. But it has to begin for believers with a heart towards justice, not with a heart to deny that any claim of injustice is false if we start there, we'll never get to justice. But if we start from a claim that says justice matters and we want to be a people of justice, then we can have all kinds of great conversations about what's happening in this area, what's happening in that area, is this law unjust or is it not? And we can unpack that and dissect that. And guess what? At times, we may even come to different conclusions. We may ultimately disagree, but it's not because we're denying the desire for justice or ignoring it as if it's not important. You with me? Does that make sense? Man, my heart is for us to be a people of justice and for us to walk forward in it in the way the scriptures speak to it because it is God's work. Statement number five, it's the most complex of all of them, and I'm just gonna give you a simple version of it. Some other day, we could probably just do our own day on this. But it's this, justice leans towards individual responsibility but calls us to see corporate responsibility too. It leans towards individual responsibility, but causes to see corporate responsibility too. Now there is a litany of biblical texts that speak both to the idea that you and I are individually responsible for the choices that we make. And yet there's also all these texts on the other side that seem to basically uh, hold accountable people who didn't commit the sin themselves, but were connected to it. And so you have to wrestle with both of those, right? So a couple of examples, I'm just gonna give you, a couple here, is Deuteronomy 24, 16. So this is in the Old Testament law. Here it is. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That same idea is uh, stated in Ezekiel 18. I talked about it earlier when we read that passage, right? And yet then we have statements like this from Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So if you're like me, you read this and you go, what do I do with this? right? Because on one hand, I've got the iniquity of the father being visited on the children. Now, I'll tell you, there's a, a, there's a way to think about that that is helpful, but you've got even more challenging texts. I mean, you want more challenging than that because when we talk about the visiting of the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the best understanding of that is not that God is saying, well, three generations down, I'm punishing you because of something your father did, but that sin has a way of manifesting itself across those generations and being handed down so that the children commit the same injustices the fathers did, and the grandfathers did, and as a result then faced the same judgment. That's probably the best understanding of that text, right? But you want to really be challenged, go to 2 Samuel 21. Go check out Numbers chapter 9, Joshua chapter 7, and we've got people being punished for the sins of others. And here's what is a broad principle, generally, and this is why I say the Bible leans towards individual responsibility. Generally, when there's punishment meted out by God to the person who didn't immediately commit the sin, it is generally because of the close proximity of the person to the sin. In other words, they probably could have done something to shape that or to change that or to speak up against it, and therefore they bear a certain amount of responsibility. Now, it's an interesting, you want to go to New Testament, just go Acts chapter two, right? So an interesting thing happens in Acts. When Peter at Pentecost is talking to the people of Jerusalem, he blames all the Jews in Jerusalem for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. Do you think that all the Jews in Jerusalem were guilty of putting Jesus on the cross? They probably weren't all there yelling for Barabbas to be freed and Jesus to go on the cross. But he blames the Jews in Jerusalem. Now go a couple chapters later. He's talking to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidian. And he says to them, you're not guilty. So they're not guilty just by virtue of being Jewish. He doesn't blame all Jews, yet he blames those who are in Jerusalem in a way that he doesn't just blame the Sanhedrin, who were the ones who actually put Jesus on trial and put him on the cross, right? So there's this, like, the closer in proximity, the more responsibility. And yet it's not overly individualistic. It doesn't just say, I can wash my hands of that because I'm not the one who immediately did it. So the scripture is both correct. It corrects both sides of that equation. Where if we want to only say, hey, I, I bear no responsibility when I could have done something, I could have spoken up. I'm a part of creating the culture that caused that thing to happen. I both am ultimately judged and punished for my own sin, and yet I bear some responsibility in ways for things that I need to be willing and able to see. The scriptures seem to speak to both sides of that. Are you with me? Does that, does that make sense? That's what I want you to see. So we're not supposed to, as people of justice, we're not supposed to just walk around denying responsibility and washing our hands of things, yet, nor are we a group of people who say just by virtue of belonging to a certain ethnic group, I am therefore guilty, or just by virtue of belonging to a certain whatever, you know, church family, I am guilty, right? You can imagine there's layers of responsibility. If there's an ongoing sin in our body, there is a way that we all bear responsibility for that as a body that has fostered it, allowed it to continue. I would bear greater responsibility. Why? Because I'm the pastor. There's a responsibility that falls on me and on the elders that does not fall on you. Yet I'm not sure that any of us would say we have no guilt. Now, those who actually are doing the activity would be those most responsible. Does that make sense? And so there's an action, a right action that is called for from each layer of responsibility. Sometimes it's repent. You did the sin, repent. Sometimes it's saying, I need to show remorse and recognize that was wrong and call it out as wrong and work towards change. So it's both thinking corporately as well as individually. The scriptures certainly lean towards the individual, but they do not dismiss the corporate. All right, friends, those are our five statements about justice. You've been patient, you've hung in there good job, my heart is that you would love justice because you love God. You cannot say you love God and fail to love justice. You cannot. And rest in hope. As you work towards justice, there will be many walls you will run into (laughs) and it will hurt. And often it will be among your own people, those you love most. But as you do that, recognize that you are not running into a wall that will exist forever. Because God is at work to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And as a result, you are practicing what the winning team is practicing. You are participating in the work of God that he is bringing forward in the world. All right. We're 12.05, but we got to sing. So if you got to go, I get it. You got to go. But why don't you stand with me? Because I think our right response is to just worship the Lord and praise him. So let's pray. Then let's sing and then we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, I pray that you take your word and just let it land in our hearts. Let us hear your word, and I pray that as a church, we would always be close to the text, just rooted in what your word says, not dismissing anything it calls us to, not advocating for things it doesn't call us to. So make us wise. Let our hearts be tender before you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the promise of the new covenant that you would write your law upon our hearts. And we pray that that would be the case. Now would you receive our praises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.